Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! <laughs> Yo, what's good, everyone? Welcome to episode number 50 of the Forbidden Technique podcast on the Fight Site Podcast Network with myself, your host, Silas Martin. And uh, Christian isn't here today. He fucking retired in disgrace because he he couldn't publicly face the embarrassment of uh, having spent the last three years going around telling everyone that Charles Oliveira is the pound-for-pound number one fighter in the world. No, Christian couldn't be here today due to scheduling conflicts and uh, was going to have Dan Albert on the show, but apparently he had fucking more important places to be. Apparently he's just on uh, another podcast that's uh, significantly higher profile and gets way more listens than this, than this, but whatever. So I'm just here on my own talking about mainly UFC 280, here to uh, explain away all my losses. This is what the recap episodes are for. So let's get right on into it. Uh, Islam Makachev submits Charles Oliveira in the second round to capture the UFC lightweight title in honestly an absolutely perfect, just incredible performance. Uh, despite our uh, foolish confidence that Charles Oliveira had this one in the bag, I feel like we put out the reasons that Islam Makachev um, had roots to win this fight and and also... Um, having just like some of the best pre-fight preparation in the sport uh, with Habib in his corner. He just keyed into absolutely everything he needed to do to win this matchup and executed it all perfectly. And I, I can only be tremendously impressed by that. I wasn't entirely convinced that Islam Makachev was elite championship material before this fight, but there's absolutely no denying it now. Um, so what happened? Well, he took Charles Oliveira down really early, and Charles mostly sat and played guard. Though Makachev wasn't getting a lot of offense off early, it was pretty neutral for both guys, but Islam also just made it incredibly difficult for Charles to scramble or get any kind of movement, um, and it meant that by the time Charles Oliveira got up, you know, he it, it, it was clear that like that, that was a, that was a no-fly zone, and that he couldn't just pull guard as a safety mechanism in this fight, which I, you know, I think we all knew going in. But then he also displayed his own uh, particular brand of MMA brain, where he just got right back into the clinch with Islam Makachev and was like, "I'm going to fucking take this guy down," and they got thrown directly into side control. You know, so it was only after a whole round of you know being out wrestled and losing on bottom that he had keyed into the idea that he needed to just be wrestling defensively and he did an okay job of that in the second round but I think an issue he had was that Charles Oliveira's like pressure on the feet works because he so often has the advantage in the clinch and is confident that he can just win there if both guys crash into each other and end up in that range and when he had more of a mind to fight the takedowns the clinch exchanges were fairly close and Charles was doing okay getting off some elbows and knees in close um but it was i think it was just the issue is that he wasn't disengaging and the the longer they hang around in those clinch situations the more makachev was taking over and getting the grips he needed and getting takedowns and so 
Um, I think it just made Charles Oliveira incredibly tentative about the range on the feet because suddenly he's like, well, I've got to just strike with this guy and I can't just crash into the clinch and I can't just uh, fall over. <laughs> so so although Charles Oliveira is a fantastic offensive striker, uh, still doesn't have very good defense. And if like all of his other ancillary tools aren't clicking, then uh, he he is just suddenly a lot more limited in his options. And Mikachev, um, his defense didn't look like classically good in this fight, but he would just stand his ground in every exchange and just kind of flap his arms like, and, and then get into the clinch where he was confident that he could win down the stretch. You know, all of this like forcing Oliveira to be really disciplined about uh, staying within a singular phase or range and then Mikachev having the confidence to follow him there because because the rest of his game was just clicking meant that uh, Charles Oliveira ends up doing a dumb uh, jumping kick and uh, getting dropped. And this time when he got dropped, he didn't have his guard as a recovery position. Islam Akachev had no issue just getting straight on top of him and sinking in an arm triangle choke before uh, he could even recover from the knockdown. Perfect game plan and execution from Islam Makachev. Did everything right. You can critique some of Charles Oliveira's decision-making, particularly early in this fight, but I think more and more in the fight that just became a function of Islam Makachev, like I say, taking away all of his ancillary tools and making him much more cautious about the range that he was forced to fight in. Uh, and a cautious Charles Oliveira, not the most effective one. Yeah, so looks like they're going to do Islam versus Alexander Volkanovsky next. Um, I'm not really into it, uh, not just because of the hilarious size difference when they faced off next to each other, but also... Uh, champ champ fights always cause a load of dumb bullshit and always end up holding up at least one of the divisions, if not both, uh, particularly divisions as good as featherweight and lightweight where I can think of uh, multiple like deserving and fascinating candidates for a title shot at Islam Makachev at lightweight already. And... Uh, Featherweight, so it's a bit of a weird one just because the gap between the champ and the number two seems so far at this point and nobody's really doing that much to make a strong case for being the next contender at Featherweight. Uh, but that being said, there's still just like plenty of very good fighters who I haven't seen Alexander Volkanovsky fight at Featherweight. And like I said, it's just uh, it's just holding up all of those other guys who are putting the hours in to, and you know, Volk saying that if he wins both belts, he's going to keep them both busy. I don't really think that's possible. I mean, I'm assuming that the UFC brass is is just uh, assuming that Islam Makachev is going to win because why would they want a double champion when they need to make a certain amount of title fights and they're pretty much always trying to have uh, two title fights on every pay-per-view because if you got to have one, then you better have two. So I don't know why they would want to limit the amount of champions that they can have and like how often they can match fights for the belts in two of the best divisions in the whole sport. All right, so co-main event. <laughs> At least I got this one right. Uh, Aljamain Sterling uh, took TJ Dillashaw down dominated him on the ground 
finished him there in two rounds. And that's it. There's no context to add to that. There's nothing weird about it in any way. Easy, clean win for Aljamain Sterling. And, of course, the um, the big story about this fight was TJ Dillashaw's shoulder injury, uh, which it kind of seemed like everyone was aware of going into the fight. Uh, supposedly it popped like 20 times over the over the course of the training camp. Like seconds into the fight, the first takedown attempt Aljamain Sterling goes for. I think he like treetops TJ off of a kick. TJ goes to post and his arm falls off immediately. Uh, Aljamain Sterling gets mount, gets on his back, beats the shit out of him for the whole round. Uh, amazingly, TJ Dillashaw is able to escape the first round. Um, even though it probably should have been stopped by this point already. Um, and then his corner fucking just popped his arm back in and sent him back out there because TJ's a fucking psycho and I'm, I, I have no doubt that in his mind he thought he could fight through it. Um, but, you know... Even when they popped it back in, he was still a one-armed fighter. Uh, Aljamain Sterling just came out, kicked his arm a bunch, which he loved to see, uh, and uh, took him down and destroyed him because, like, TJ literally couldn't push off with his left arm at all. So he had absolutely no ability to defend takedowns or scramble. Um, and it makes me wonder why he took this fight. Like I say, uh. I'm sure he's just an insane competitor and believed he could do it. Also probably thought this was his last shot at a title um, and that he couldn't just sit out again because he'd already had to do that before because of the knee injury after the Sandhagen fight. Um, so I guess he had he had to just go for it. Which I can respect, but like, so it was pretty clear that he just like was not in physical shape to take this fight. Um, I'm not trying to take anything away from Aljamain Sterling's win because he just fucking turned up and did his job, and that's how this shit works. People, this is fighting. People get injured. People fight through it. You know, TJ Dillashaw got his knee exploded in the first round of the Corey Sandhagen fight, and somehow went on to win it. I don't know, not all injuries are the same, but, you know, shit happens. It was pretty clear that just TJ probably hadn't been able to drill defensive wrestling at all in camp because his arm kept falling off. And, you know, even before the injury came to light, uh, a lot of us watching watching the walkouts were, were all just saying, man, TJ Dillashaw looks like shit. He does not look in good physical shape. Like, he looks like he looked when he fought Henry Cejudo. So, I don't know, clearly this just, this just had a massive effect on his training. This fight probably shouldn't have happened, but it did. Aljamain Sterling got paid and netted an easy win where he took no damage over one of the goats of the division so good for him um in terms of who Aldermain Sterling should be defending his title against next uh 
I guess that segues into our next fight. Sean O'Malley versus Piotr Yan. This is another one where I've just got to come straight out and say, fucking fair enough to Sean O'Malley, because I have not been convinced that he is elite bantamweight material. I'm sure I'm not the only one. I just didn't think he had uh, the toughness and durability, cardio, I wasn't honestly that convinced by his punching power from just you know just by him knocking out a variety of uh old or fragile or just not very good people and he just kind of dramatically underperformed every time he had any kind of uh, meaningful step up in competition so you know there was no reason to expect this fight to play out the way it did but yet he ended up picking up the split decision win in this fight, which a lot of people weren't happy about. But having watched the fight back, I'm kind of like, can you really be mad about Piotr Yan losing this fight when he got hurt in every round? He also got a lot of huge damage off on Sean O'Malley and got a ton of takedowns. But the margins were so close and the fight has so many just like back and forths of consecutive... Uh, call an ambulance but not for me sequences where Sean O'Malley will find some really sneaky offense and fuck Piotr up and then he'll chase him down with a bunch of strikes and put himself out of position and Piotr will stand there and clang him with a massive counter also to call a robbery was just taking it it's just taking away from genuinely the fact that Sean O'Malley showed the fuck up against you know one of the top guys in the division who a year or two ago Fucking 80% of this website were calling the pound for pound number one fighter in the world. And like I said, I just, I did not expect him, A, to have the power to be able to hurt Piotian. Because uh, I, I mean, I guess a big difference between how O'Malley and Sanhagen approached Yan was Sanhagen wanted to just like overwhelm Yan's guard and just, just pepper him with a ton of, with a ton of volume. But I think that just, you know, ended up meaning that he was just giving Yan a ton of reads while Yan didn't have to respect his offense as much because Corey wasn't sitting down to hurt Yan enough. Whereas Sean O'Malley was just trying to find little openings to land fucking bombs on Piotr Yan. Like, it was cool the way that, you know, Yan, he's very responsible about, like, exiting behind a long guard because generally it's pretty hard to punch past someone's long guard if they've just got their lead hand outstretched in your face. So a lot of people will just like resort to uh, to kicking, um, at which point you, you can be ready with checks and parries and stuff. Uh, Sean O'Malley just has fucking long enough arms to crack P.O.E.N. with huge fucking right hands over his long guard. That was neat. Uh, you know, he also had good reads about punishing Yan for, as I was saying last week, just just kind of uh, throwing up the high guard and ducking down as, as a one-size-fits-all defensive manoeuvre. I also didn't expect him to show the like pretty fantastic scrambling ability that he showed in this fight when Piotr Yan was taking him down. Like, he got taken down a good bit, and in some cases would have to take some licks to get up, but... He got up very consistently and and at one point did a really nice like switch into a Gramby roll, a cool creative counter wrestling shit that you, <laughs> that you love to see cake boxers do. 
which, you know, is coming a long way from literally getting knocked out as soon as Cheeto Vera got in his guard, which I can concede that his leg being fucked up in that fight was, you know, what led to him being in that position in the first place and not, you know, Cheeto just getting the easiest takedown ever because Sean O'Malley could, could barely stand up. But here's the thing. There's no reason that that injury should have, like, compromised his defense to ground and pound in that situation because Cheeto Vera just sat in his guard and just just fucked with his hands and blasted him with an elbow. If he had passed to a really dominant position and then destroyed O'Malley, I'd be like, well, yeah, having no stability in your leg is going to massively affect your guard retention. Fair enough. But, you know, he got knocked out because he was just like 10 steps behind with the hand fight when Cheeto got in his guard and was looking to land ground and pound. So, like, remarkable improvements in that time. Fair enough. Um, also, just yeah, the the durability and recovery, the ability to stay in a fight where he was getting fucked up, all remarkably impressive. And I don't really have an issue with him getting the win in this fight. And it was cool to see just a moment of like honest humility from O'Malley after this fight. Just just being like, yeah, that was a hard fight. I don't really know if I won. And also, just people asking him about you know, having to have this kind of performance where he got fucked up real bad and had to dig deep. And he was just like, no, I didn't really like it. Like, nobody wants to get hit in the head. It's fucking bad for you. Uh, I don't know. That was just like, it was kind of refreshing from the whole just cliche. Oh, I just love the violence. I just love to bang shit. So, I don't know. Maybe I like Sean O'Malley now. (laughs) Uh, That being said, it would be a fucking travesty for him to skip Cheeto Vera for a title shot, even him coming off a performance as impressive as this. But it'll probably happen. Holy fuck, can you imagine if he knocked out Aljamain Sterling and we have Sean O'Malley versus Cheeto for the title? Shit would be wacky. Yeah, so uh, as for Pierre Yan, man, these, these Yan stands have got to be absolutely fucking seething. This is like the one time I wish I was on MMA Twitter because I... I can only imagine what those poor guys are going through right now. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like Christian gave, said I was giving Sean O'Malley too much credit for saying that he could have made this competitive early. I was just uh, banking on Piotian coming into this fight extremely angry and probably underestimating Sean O'Malley slightly and assuming that he could just blow him out the water and getting fucked up by someone who he, he wasn't respecting. And... And he didn't get the finish against someone who, like, by all merits on paper, it should have been a massive mismatch against. So, yeah, uh, that's what happens. You, you you lose the fight. Yeah, so I guess Yan has to fight, like, Marab. Okay, and so on to uh, one of my personal highlights for the night and a fight that went just exactly how it was supposed to go. Uh, Benil Dariush. I kind of fucking took Mateusz Gamrot to school for a lot of the reasons that we expected that Mateusz Gamrot, his whole game just relies on shooting an absolute fuckload of takedowns, a lot of which don't work, and just relying on that eventually being able to drag the opponent into his fight, which made for two incredibly close fights. I think he definitely lost both of, but were both splits that went either way against Guram Katataladze and Armin Sarukian, who just showed that if you actually just can defend the takedowns consistently enough, then Gamrot's game kind of just falls apart a little bit. 
like as a striker, like like he can come forward and throw some heat if the rest of his game's clicking and it's giving him confidence that you're like biting on his setups and stuff. Benil Dariush kind of just consummately outscrambled him. I mean, his scrambling in this fight was fucking gorgeous. He was doing a ton of like uh, funk rolls into leg entanglements and using that to disengage and get back to the feet. Um, he was doing really nice work with like intercepting counter knees as Gamrot was shooting because, again, Gamrot loves to just shoot these low singles that nobody really shoots because, A, they're pretty easy to limp leg out of and, uh, B, like shooting them just leaves you open to getting fucked up by stuff like counter knees on the way in. Like, if I remember right, Gamrot kind of got himself soccer kicked against Guram Kutataladze because Guram was just like, well, I'll just spam kicks and knees at, at the guy who's like, shoot, shooting these weird takedown entries that, that are just going to get him blasted on the way in. Yes, Benil was doing really nice work with that. Much like those two guys just fucking blasting in with body kicks when they were at range. Gamrot didn't have much of an answer for. I mean, what was cool was, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people looking at this fight was thought that Benil Darius should have, like, all of the tools that he would need to to counter Gamrot's game and win rounds, but that the pace could eventually weigh on him and that the third round could start getting pretty dicey and that over a five-round fight, it would be a lot harder to pick Benil Darius. Now, having seen this fight play out... Um, it was kind of the opposite where the first round was the most competitive and the longer the fight went on, the more Benil Dariush was just able to take away all of Gamrot's tools and make his own really nice offensive reads. And by the third round, Benil Dariush was so firmly in control of this fight that I don't even really see what Gamrot would have done to come back over over another two rounds if, if there had been. In the third round, uh, uh, Benil got the biggest moment of offense. We dropped uh, Gamrot with a big counter left hand as Gamrot was stepping in with a kick. So fantastic performance from Benil Dariush. Uh, he's on a fucking eight fight win streak now. Honestly, would much rather see him fight Islam Akachev than Alexander Volkanovsky, but he's almost certainly going to have to take another fight. Uh, despite this really impressive win streak and a couple of pretty impressive signature wins at this point. Uh, because if, you know, e- even if he tries to sit out, it's very likely that he could get passed up for, I mean, let's say if Fazeev is going to fight Justin Gaethje, if he wins that, or, if, I don't know, even the fucking winner of Chandler Poirier. So I think the fight to make... It's kind of got to be uh, Benil Dariush versus Charles Oliveira, which is a fucking hard fight for, for Benny. And it sucks that, you know, it's probably the fight that he needs to win to get to a title shot. But is it an, uh, is it an unwinnable fight for him, given what we've seen tonight? I don't know. But sounds like a great fight that you got to make. Make it a main event. Do it now. Uh, Manon Fioro defeated Caitlin Chikagan by decision in a fight that happened. Made me wonder if Caitlin Chukagian is getting up there a little bit. Well, I mean, she missed weight in this fight and just looked a little flat. Didn't seem to be throwing as much volume as she normally does. Um, Maybe got put off by the fact that Fioro was landing some decent counters on her. Uh, But Fioro (sighs) didn't hit the body, really. Looked really limited. She was doing her 
lead sidekick that she likes, but she was pretty much just doing it to the thigh. I think she was like, well, Kagan's really fucking tall, so if I want to hit her in the body with this, then I've got to angle it up kind of weird. Uh, whereas, you know, if I just throw it at the thigh, I'm just to throw it, throw it straight out like normal. Um, and it also just occurred to me how much of a right-sided southpaw Manon Fioro is. Because it is all that lead sidekick and check hook. Uh, she has a left hand, kind of. It's really fucking ugly. It's a real early Cyril Garn power hand. And she just doesn't really have a left kick to speak of, which, you know, as a southpaw, you shouldn't solely rely on having a good left kick and left hand, but you should have a good left kick and left hand. So, yeah, uh, another pretty tepid affair in a potential flyweight title eliminator. Uh, Fioro, to her credit, said she wouldn't mind taking some more fights before they put her in a fight with Valentina. So I guess just fucking get Alexa Grasso straight straight in there. Fioro can stay busy. This is a fight that happened. Oh, but fuck all that, because Bilal Mohammed knocked out Sean Brady. It was sick. Um, I mean, we pretty confidently picked Bilal Mohammed just to kind of I think I think we expected him more to just outmaneuver Sean Brady, like emphasize mobility and just keep his distance a lot more. Whereas instead he was like really insistent about pressure, which made a lot of sense because Sean Brady's game does not function off of the back foot at all. And while he's incredibly physically strong, he's not fast or explosive. So Whenever he tried to shoot, Blau was always ready to dig under hooks and disengage, and he always had plenty of space to do that because he was the one pressuring, and he never had his back to the cage for Sean Brady just to be able to smush him and try and try and look to convert grips. So Sean Brady was just stuck being a really slow guy with no defense uh, against a really quick guy who throws a lot. It was cool to see uh, Blau Mohammed also had uh, Khabib in his corner. Uh, we've credited multiple times as one of the best strategists in the history of the sport. Um, you know, they clearly had a lot of good ideas about how Bilal Muhammad should approach this fight as well as equipping him with a good place to have a wrestling camp. Um, but it was also the fact that just as the finish was materialising, uh, Khabib was just screaming at Bilal Muhammad, finish him, finish him, which was kind of the advice that Bilal Muhammad needs because this fight shows that anyone can become a finisher like I remember seeing Bilal Muhammad just get dominant positions on Stephen Thompson absolutely smashing him winning the fight 30-25 and just not even coming close to a finish and I just looked at that and I thought all right Bilal Muhammad is just never going to get a TKO in the UFC it's not in him and this fight he talked about wanting to make a statement, feeling like he's disrespected, having to fight down when he's now himself also on an eight-fight win streak and has wins in the top five. And he had Diego Lima just shelled up against the fence and he was just beating the fuck out of him for three whole rounds and didn't get the finish. But I think because that was in, in that fight, he was just like oh, this guy isn't doing anything. I get to try a bunch of, like, cool striking stuff. I'm going to do some fucking Nate Marquardt-ass fucking spinning back fist into double left uppercut to the body, which is like, okay, that's fun. But 
uh, in this fight, he just, once he sensed that Brady was really starting to shit the bed on the back foot, he just walked at him and threw a bunch of one-twos until the fight had to be stopped. You know, it's like, sometimes you don't gotta, like, be really patient and find some slick shit. You just have to fucking blast your opponent. Makes me think of, like, watching, like, Sanchai or Pernell Whitaker, you know, these incredible technicians that you'll you'll see do some incredibly slick, high-tech shit to to set up a really nice counter to hurt their opponent. And then once they realise that their opponent's hurt, they just throw the same one-two like nine times in a row until they fall over. <laughs> so yeah, Bilal Mohammed, as good as Sanchai and Penel Wicker, uh, honestly should probably get the next title shot, assuming that Leon Edwards is going to rematch Kamara Usman. I think only fair to put Bilal Mohammed in with the winner of that. He called out Hamzat Shemaev. I think they're trying to book Shemaev with Colby Covington. So, again, depending on how this title rematch shakes out and what happens in that fight, Bilal Mohamed might have to just sit out and fight down again. But remember the name. He's, the man's clearly a top five welterweight at this point. Okay, I didn't talk about the rest of these fights last week, and then uh, they were mostly bad. Uh, Nikita Krilov versus Volkan Uzdemir. I mean, I, I really should have thought about this fight for more than three seconds, and it should have been obvious that Volkan Uzdemir was just going to absolutely smoke Nikita Krilov in the first round, but then Nikita Krilov wasn't going to get knocked out, and Volkan Uzdemir was going to get tired, and Krilov would just to stay aggressive and active and wrestle a bunch. Um, there's uh, some fucking weird MMA math going on between the series of fights between these two guys and Paul Craig that says something, but I'm not quite sure what. Um, Mohamed Mikhaev kind of didn't look that good against Malcolm Gordon and then armbarred him off his back, so that was lame, didn't really say anything. Oh... Uh, Whatever the the real meat of this card really was, all at the top. Okay, and so uh, we have a card this weekend, uh, headlined by a featherweight contenders match. Cool matchup between Calvin Cater and Arnold Allen. Mostly just going to be talking about the main event on this one. There isn't really that much that I want to get too deep into on the rest of this, particularly by myself. Um, but it's a good main event. And it's one that, I mean, it's funny, when Kevin Kay was booked up with Giga Jakadze, I think a lot of people looked at that and were on the surface level like, oh, it's a, it's a fast guy who goes southpaw and is mobile and kicks a lot. Oh, that's going to be bad for Calvin Kato. And Calvin Kato beat the fucking shit out of Giga Jakadze. And I don't know if people are going to be looking at this fight and having that same, like, instant reaction. Um, but I kind of think Arnold Allen is a way better version of, like, the thing that people thought was going to give uh, Kata trouble against Giga Jakadze. Because Giga Jakadze has, like, kind of dog shit Rencraft. And when really pressed, doesn't have any tools to get you off him other than just like try and scare you away with a big blitz and like the southpaw dynamic didn't even really come into that fight because um like Kata's like 
kind of traditional boxing game ended up not really being that much of a factor because he was just like, as long as I'm chasing this guy away, he's not in position to do anything. So I just need to uh, find ways to land really big shots to his head as he runs away, flailing like a, a gangly spaghetti man. He was just walking Giga down with shifting elbows and stuff. And Arnold Allen, I think, just has fundamentally, dramatically better footwork and ring craft than Giga Jakate. Uh, he can barboza himself a little bit, but generally he's a lot more responsible. You, you know, he's just a lot more mechanically sound about moving in a way that uh, actually allows him to put himself in position to strike. Um, he's a lot more aware of the cage, and he has a clinch that he'll he'll go to where he's really quite strong. On the feet, his game is a lot of like fighting the lead hand from Southpaw to like find a path for his left-handed left kick. And that's another interesting thing is how Calvin Cater is going to approach a dedicated Southpaw because he has fought switch hitters in Giga Chikadze and Andre Feely. But I can't... I mean, Arnold Allen is just like the Southpaw of the division. And it's always interesting how someone, particularly someone with a very traditional boxing-centric approach in MMA is going to approach a southpaw if they're going to be comfortable landing their jab and all of this stuff. Um, you know, particularly against Andre Feely, kind of when Feely was southpaw, Cater did kind of abandon his jab a good bit. He would usually resort to either just trying to walk Andre Feely into a left hook over the lead shoulder, which he did do nice work with, or he would just kick with Feely, or he'd just switch with Feely. Where, you know, Feely would be going southpaw to land the left body kick, a high kick switch up. And so if Cater went southpaw, then Feely would be like, ah, fuck, I don't really have uh, closed stance tools from southpaw, so I better just switch back to orthodox. Then Calvin Cater would switch back to orthodox and be like, hey, we're boxing again now. And it pretty much was one when they were um, both orthodox that Calvin Cater would then be able to land his one-two. That is a concern, but also that fight was quite a while ago, and it was Calvin Cater's UFC debut on two weeks short notice. So you have to think there was pretty minimal like specific fight preparation and that he was kind of just feeling out his reads in the fight as it was happening. Uh, he did also start finding, like, nice counter right hands to Feely's left kick in the open stance like later on in the fight. You know, you would hope that at this point for a big main event fight against a dedicated Southpaw that you will have had some good Southpaw sparring partners and been working his normal game against Southpaw, but that's not... I haven't really seen it. And that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and, you know, as I say against Giga Jakadze, the way he fought that fight, Giga was kind of not even in a stance for most of that fight. Um, something that does potentially concern me for Arnold Allen, particularly depending on how Cater chooses to approach this fight, is I'm not sure that he likes to push that much of a pace in fights. Um, I think he wants to be pretty, he, he, he wants to keep the action fairly controlled, um, like we saw in the Sadiq Yusuf fight, he kind of just would spend the first half of each round just setting up one big moment of really clean offense against Sadiq. Uh, I think in the first round he dropped him with 
a left hand and second round dropped him with a left high kick, uh, both off of that like lead, lead hand fight that we were talking about. And then for the, for the rest of each of those rounds after that, when the finish didn't just materialize, he would just clinch up with Sadiq and just try and squish him against the fence and just be like, well, I've won this round, super clear off of that knockdown, so I just need to get through this round and just bank it. And once he had done that twice, he was kind of content to just let the third round be whatever it was. In a five-round fight with Calvin Cato, someone who you know has reasonable wealth of five-round experience at this point and who we've seen is tremendously well-conditioned and can push a ridiculous pace if he needs to, um, could be an issue. I'm, I'm interested to see how the clinch plays out because, as I say, Arnold Allen is surprisingly strong there. It's, it's definitely not nothing to just be able to kind of smush Sadiq Youssef up against the fence. You know, Alan will also shoot for takedowns and try and work from top, but I don't really expect that to work against Calvin Cater because he is a pretty bulletproof defensive wrestler. Danny Gay couldn't get him down for love nor money over a five-round fight. And honestly, this could be another opportunity for Calvin Cater to work his like surprisingly underrated offensive wrestling and grappling. Like, he took down Andre Feely and kind of beat the fuck out of him from top. Like, Kay has got really nice ground and pound, but you mostly only see it these days when he's hurt someone and is following them to the ground. But he's got that, like, boxer ground and pound where he gets real tall, throws really nice, accurate straight shots. You know, he doesn't just flail ineffective hooks. Um, and as I say, he's he's a decent takedown artist. It's just not really something he does. And Arnold Allen kind of... Uh, got wrestled the fuck up for most of his fight against Mads Bunnell until he found a guillotine. Generally not the most replicable win condition at a high level of MMA. But looking at all of these things, um, I think I have to pick Arnold Allen. And not just because I should probably start picking some British people because they keep winning. Also because... um, even though I can see so many avenues for Calvin Cater to win, if you just look at the, the normal ways that both of these guy, guys' games like to function, it, the dynamic just kind of seems to favor Arnold Allen because Calvin Cater, as we've said, um, has had issues with people who shut down his jab, keep their feet moving, and kick him. And you know, we've seen it done to various extents by different versions of that archetype on sliding scales of technique and athleticism in like Hanato Moicano and as a beat Magomed Sharapov and probably something that I should take away from last weekend's main event. You shouldn't project adaptability onto fighters just because they're really good and you can see the ways that they can win. Um, have I seen Calvin Cater push a ridiculous pace? Yes. Have have I seen him also kind of get frozen and get his offense limited? Yeah. Um, do I think he could probably take down Arnold Allen and work him from top? Yeah. Has he done that in any of his fights other than Giga Jikadze, the most obvious matchup to do that in ever? N- no. Do I have faith in Calvin Cater to get his jab working against the Southpaw? Uh, I haven't seen it. And do I trust Calvin Cater to, to like, pressure aggressively and try and 
Try and really put Arnold Allen out of position on the back foot. I don't know, maybe? Will he just walk into the clinch? And how will he do there? So I can see all of these things that Calvin Cater can do that can favor him. But if you just look at how these guys generally fight, it just it seems like a seems like an annoying ass fight for him. Okay, what else is on this card? Tim Means is fighting Max Griffin. Um, I'm going to pick Tim Means because Max Griffin is all right and tries his best. He's pretty athletic, but he's not like an elite athlete. And he just like really gets stuck on one track in a fight. And he'll come in with good ideas for his opponent. But generally, if he doesn't get a finish and his opponent can adjust to them, he kind of takes his eye off the ball. Tim Means is just like one of the most crafty seasoned technicians at welterweight. He's kind of old and a little bit fragile now. Um, But he still never really gets knocked out. Uh, it's normally he. It's normally that he gets hurt and then gets front choked. I don't really expect Max Griffin to do that. Like he's not the kind of ice cold finisher who's who's just gonna instantly sink a guillotine and drops you. I trust the experience and craft of Tim Means to pull through. Trayshawn Gore's fighting Josh Fremd. That's kind of another horrible mismatch when you look at the experience and you could look at it and be like, well, yeah, Josh Fremd is 0-1 in the UFC, but he has way more fights than Trayshawn Gore and has only lost to really good fighters, and Trayshawn Gore like, shouldn't be here, and there's no reason for him to be because he didn't win tough, um, and uh, I just have a really bad feeling that a talented young fighter with a ton of potential is just going to get broken in half because he got here too early. Uh, Dustin Jacoby versus Khalil Roundtree, the two best kickboxers at light heavyweight. It was a cool fight. I'm going to pick Khalil Roundtree because Dustin Jacoby's not going to wrestle and I'm never going to pick against Khalil Roundtree ever again, even if he loses another six fights, which he probably will. Andre Olosky's fighting Marco Sergio de Lima. I mean, de Lima does punch extremely fucking hard in the first round. If there's someone who can just catch Arlovsky cold and spark him out again, you know, it hasn't happened since Rosenstruck. Could happen here, but I'm going to pick Arlovsky to win a decision. Oh, Chase Hooper's fighting Steve Garcia. Steve Garcia's had a rough run. I think Chase Hooper's probably going to out-grapple Steve Garcia and beat the fuck out of him. Uh, Okay. That's it. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast and all the other great stuff that the Fight Side puts out, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We're pledging just $5 gains access to a fantastic library of really high-quality analytical fight content and also a Discord server where we have a great community of really cool fight fans from a ton of different backgrounds. We're always having great discussions. We're getting together and watching fights in VCs and stuff. You can talk to staff, ask us questions. It's always a good time. This has been the Forbidden Technique podcast where uh, I should hope next week I will be rejoined by Christian if he can stop crying in the shower where we're going to talk about any cool stuff that happens from this card as well as next week's UFC Fight Night headlined by uh, Marina Rodriguez versus Amanda Lemos which should be extremely violent. Cool. We'll see you then. Peace.